Hello, everybody, and welcome to Shakespeare Alive, a podcast of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. My name's Paul Edmondson. Shakespeare Alive hosts conversations with people who work with Shakespeare throughout the world. Today's guest on Shakespeare Alive is the internationally renowned theatre artist Lisa Volpe. She is a visionary who is leading the movement for gender parity and diversity in the arts with a special focus on Shakespeare and gender. She has given acclaimed performances of many of Shakespeare's male roles, including Richard II, Shylock, Hamlet, Richard III, Iago and Cassius. She was the founding artistic director of the Los Angeles Women's Shakespeare Company from 1993 to 2016, and she's directed Shakespeare across the states at California Shakespeare, Colorado Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Company, Sedona Shakespeare, and at many universities, and for the Prague Shakespeare Company. And all this with her keen eye on gender, race, and socio-political power. She is a pioneer, and we are honoured and delighted to welcome her to Shakespeare Alive. Lisa, welcome. Bless you. Thank you. So happy to be with you, Paul. Hey, what was your route into Shakespeare, and what did you find there? Well, the first Shakespeare that I did was with Eric Christmas, an English actor who taught at the University of California, San Diego. I think I was 17 when I met Eric. And then I went to Shakespeare and Company in Western Massachusetts, uh, I think when I was 19. It was the second intensive that they ever led, a month-long uh, professional program for students. And there I met Tina Packer and Mary Conway, my clown master, and Kristen Linklater, the voice diva, and John Barton, the movement expert, and uh, Neil Freeman, some of my uh, most interesting mentors that just changed my life at that time, and also um, Natsuko Ohama, who became one of my most important collaborators in life. It was only a couple of years later that um, Kristen Linklater started the Company of Women, which was an international all-female multicultural company. And uh, we would, for several years, work in universities as mentors to the female faculty and the girls in those communities. In exchange, we were able to workshop our ideas. And our first big production was Henry V, and I played Henry which we did at Shakespeare and Company and at Smith College. I think Tina Packer helped find that funding for us. Can you just talk a little bit about your memories of preparing for Henry V, what it was like when you were performing, the reactions to your Henry V? Well, I remember the play started with me uh, whacking a tennis ball because of mock, mock, mock uh, in little shorts, you know, little white shorts against the wall. And then it segued into dressing in my regal robe and playing chess with Kristen Linklater as Exeter. And her first move was to upend the board. She smacked the board upside and the pieces went everywhere. And she was a very powerful Scottish woman. And um, I was young. I was in my 20s. And the challenge was right there in the room. You know, bring it or you can't play this role. <laughs> um, so it was an interesting show in which we were an all-female company and the director, Maureen Shea, really wanted to reveal our femininity. So I was playing Henry 
in a skin-tight Donna Karen leather vest. And the Dauphin was this beautiful Belgian woman who wore a cat suit. Um, and Patrice Johnson, a fantastic black actress, was playing Catherine of France. And so the power in the women was intense and there was nothing masculine really about it. And it, was this the first time you'd played a male character in Shakespeare? The first time I experienced my masculinity was playing Viola in that, when I was 19, Viola and Cesario. And I remember sitting in that uh, rehearsal moment thinking, I am all genders. I've always been all genders. I'm androgynous anyway. A thing which now has a name, but then did not. It was uh, common for people to stop me on the street that I didn't know and ask me if I was a boy or a girl. But really, um, we were looking at the pattern of tyranny uh, since the Christian male system went into place. Do you know what I mean? And writing about it, thinking about it. So dropping it in, I would feel very connected to Patrice Johnson, who's a gay woman, and I could completely respond to her as a potential love partner, someone that I thought was magnificent. This is a Catherine of France. Catherine of France. I thought yeah. she's brilliant. She's gorgeous. She's my friend. She's um, uh, in the role. She's magnificent. I'm always I'd, loved, I'd love to have seen you in Act 5, both of you together, with that wonderful courtship scene. Well, this is where it changed, Paul, because in rehearsal, I found this glee and joy. I would have seduced her. I would build a willow cabin at her house. Um, but then our director got involved and she said, now my vision is I want you to disassociate. When your father dies, you disassociate. God becomes your father. Put the blinders on. You are now uh, much like Bolingbroke. You're going to move forward through the play throwing this guy under the bus and that guy under the bus, you know, betrayed by this man. So now your revenge is not to trust anyone and hang your friends and say goodbye to false staff. And, you know, that's not what my heart wanted, but my head was now being asked to control the experience so that instead of coming in like Kenneth Branagh did to Emma Thompson, you know, with a rough grin and, you know, uh, a cheeky attitude and maybe a potential love story, I was to come in and not play any of that and just play my agenda of unifying Britain under one God. So I did Henry V and the next year I started my own company in Los Angeles and began the practice of actually transforming myself into a masculine silhouette so that I don't play Hamlet as a woman, I play Hamlet as a man. When I play Shylock, I put a beard on. You can't tell that I'm a female. Were you playing Henry V as a woman or as a man? Neither. Neither. Because, uh, the text was masculine. My form was female. No one in the room was pretending that they were not who they were. So if you were a clown playing Bardolph or Pistol or Nim, you might put a, you know, a spaghetti colander on your head for a helmet and, and be yourself doing it. And, Many people do that now. They say my gender is unimportant. What were the other milestones along the way? Because I mean, I named them at the beginning. Some of those astonishing roles in the whole of you know dramatic literature. You've played them. You've brought Shylock to life, and Richard II to life, and Richard III to life, and Iago, for goodness sakes. And and it seems to me that you are continuing to learn about yourself, about gender, about Shakespeare. And I wonder what some of these milestones have been for you. 
what you've learned there? Well, Natsuko Ohama, who's Japanese-Canadian, the premier voice teacher now that uh, Kristen has passed on, um, was my basics teacher at Shakespeare and Company. <laughs> and then um, after the workshop, my then husband and I moved to New York and I studied with all of the master teachers in New York. And so we had a group of people together and I was, I'd already played Rosalind and Viola. I was too young for Hermione. There's not much else to play. And Natsuko had me play Malvolia. And I fell in love with playing male characters. Now she's very much a wizard. So she's, so when I asked her how to play a man, she said, just watch basketball. So I did what she said and I could see the way they moved in their bodies. And I looked at the way men and I would imitate the way that they would work in that athletic, exciting uh, leg strong way. That was part of it. But I was also raised to be a good girl. I was in the Canary Islands and in Germany when I was a child and you had to stand up and give the right answer and be correct and then sit down and be polite. And when I went to Shakespeare and Company, there was a woman called Mary Conway, M-E-R-R-Y, who was the clown master for the company. And it was then, because I just adored her work, the clown work is very heart opening, that I stopped doing Shakespeare for a number of years. And I only did clown. I just worked on my body's knowledge, my listening body, and opening my heart, and trying to find something other than getting it right, which we used to call the glorious failure or the ring of fire. And it was there that you found that after the fart jokes and the easy um, comic bits, you had to go to a real place of truth in order to elicit sympathy or empathy from your group of people listening. And I went to uh, San Diego where I'd gone to college and my husband had a house where we could stay and brought several of the troop members there. And I wrote an original play in clown called Parzival, which as you know, is the grail myth of compassion. And that won an award, uh, you know, for me as a playwright. Um, and it was also original work based on what I think is important in Shakespeare, which is this sacred wisdom that comes in at the heart and beats at the heart with the poetry. And it has, its, has as its intention enlightenment to turn lead into gold, to turn people into, um, uh, containers of light yeah and so having followed the clown work I wrote a, a grant to do Romeo and Juliet and pure clown because I had seen two people that I loved Kevin Coleman and Susan Dibble who were Shakespeare and Company actors do the balcony scene in Red Nose Clown few or no words but a beautiful scene and I said I want to do the whole play like that I want to play Romeo and then I started to try to cut the text and I realized I was in love with the words. And I didn't want to cut the text. I wanted to actually play Romeo. And so I started the Los Angeles Women's Shakespeare Company in 1993 in a 50-seat theater, playing Romeo in an all-female cast with Natsuko Hama as the friar and Fran Bennett as the nurse. And um, we sold out and the audience went bananas the estrogen in the room, the excellence of our work. I mean, we were text bunnies. There wasn't a semicolon unearthed, but there was also this powerful, sensual, exciting female voice that I'd never seen. And it was also uh, not a white company. It was 50% not white as often. I would cast multiculturally in 1993. So the audience was immediately integrated and there was this uh, female empowerment on stage. 
And also the box office was doing very well. My face and my heart are smiling as you say all of this. I mean, it's just astonishing and beautiful to, to listen to. We really appreciate your support for Shakespeare Alive and we'd love to hear from you about how you're enjoying our podcast. So please complete our survey by visiting shakespeare.org.uk forward slash future. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your usual podcast platform. Why not join the conversation on social media by using hashtag Shakespeare Alive? And we hope that you enjoy the rest of this episode. You use the word alchemy in relation to what you do with gender in performance. And your one woman show, which is called Shakespeare and the Alchemy of Gender, which was in part written, I'm proud to say, in Stratford-upon-Avon. I've seen it a couple of times and it's astonished me on both occasions. Could you tell us a little bit about it and, and what it means to you personally? Because it's very, very personally rooted, that that story, that that presentation and, and how it's evolved. I began an MFA program, uh, virtual learning for the most part, but we would spend eight days at Goddard College in Vermont um, with a cohort of 12 people and you could pick your own mentor and decide what your curriculum was, what your reading list was and what you were seeking. The motto of the school was at the heart of your mind. And in my second semester, I picked a Jewish lesbian rabbi who started to question me about my life. And she said, um, so your father committed suicide when you were four. He was Jewish. I said, yes, I don't know anything about him. My Christian side of the family, my mother's side of the family doesn't speak about him. Uh, uh, so I don't know. And she said, well, is it possible you're anti-Semitic? And I said, I don't think so. We're Democrats. We vote, you know, <laughs> And then I looked at the situation and I realized what was really bothering me was the taboo of speaking about the dead, speaking about suicide, speaking about why people fall into despair. And in my own life, the pushback on me trying to speak the truth of the world as I see it has always um, created in me this ferocious desire to speak the truth even more clearly. I want not to be stopped in that way. So I began to write. And I put on an all-female As You Like It, and I played Jaquies and um, cowboy version. And there was a woman in the audience who was a millionaire. And she had started a foundation called the Gaia Foundation. And she saw me, and her friend was playing Rosalind, so she realized what a benefit it was to human beings who were female to liberate their internal terrain through Shakespeare. And she called me at home and she said, I have a program and I'd like you to visit me. I'm going to give you a house in Provincetown, $600 a week, a round trip airfare, a brand new computer to work on for a month. And you don't have to show me anything. I never had that before, a place of my own to write. And I went to Provincetown and I began to write this piece about what I believe and what I've done in my life. And my friend who runs the Provincetown Women's Theater Festival came over for a cup of tea and she said, I am starting a women's theater festival right here in Provincetown. And if you finish this by the end of the month, I'll give you a thousand dollars and a chance to perform it right here in Provincetown. So the original story 
was two and a half hours long with no intermission. My hair went white as I wrote it. And it contained my father's story, who was a German Jew who fought with the Canadians against the Nazis. My mother's story, who had multiple sclerosis and died uh, when I was 14, also through suicide. The legacy of the LA Women's Shakespeare Company, everything we had learned, everything we had done, who did what, what woman had played this king and that, maybe too much. But, you know, that's that was the first draft. And then I took versions of it to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival where I've worked and Bill Rausch gave me a venue in the Bomer Theater so I could do it for, you know, 800 people. And I also did it in libraries in the community for 10 homeless people. You know, I, I played it in different places. And then we had a Shakespeare conference. I think you were there in Stratford some years ago. And I met the people who run the Springworks Fringe Festival. And they said, we're taking submissions. Would you like to bring your solo festival? I said, great idea. International travel, a new out-of-town tryout. Um, and they said, well, it can only be 55 minutes, though. And that's when I engaged Laurie Woolery, who's a brilliant Hispanic uh, Latinx director who works at the public now, to help me cut it and uh, to put it on its feet. And I made it so that I didn't need anything but a bottle of water. I just had to remember the words. I didn't need a projection screen or a special outfit or props. I or can't wait to see this again. There's a version online. Is there a version online, Lisa? Yeah, I have it online, but it, I, I have actually shared it during the pandemic with maybe 30 universities. And online, it's a depth charge. And then I show up for a 45-minute question and answer afterwards on Zoom. And it was a way for people to really feel like they could have uh, radical programming, you know, about gender and about um, solo shows and uh, the impact that you can make as an artist when you go uh, into a new direction with the work that we love. As far as listeners to the podcast are concerned, are they able to access it in some way? If you write to me at lisavolpe at gmail.com, I can arrange to share a link or to rent a link. So some friends I give it to and universities sometimes pay me $5,000. So there's a sliding scale and it's how I've survived in a way, having intellectual property like that. But I haven't got it on a pay-per-view system. I might be able to create that. I haven't done it yet. So stepping back, and you've been talking about this all the way through the podcast in some ways, but what would you say that your having played many of the leading male roles in Shakespeare has taught you about Shakespeare and about men? Well, uh, there's so many different men in the world. You know, so many different kinds of men in the world. Um, and, well, first of all, Hamlet has 1,500 lines, and Gertrude and Ophelia together have 350 lines. So the ability to actually play something with bandwidth and range and stamina and intelligence is the chance to reveal my own stamina and bandwidth and intelligence. So it is my conduit for my life purpose which I would not have if I didn't play the male roles. So, and then playing things two and three times. So I've played Iago three times, Richard III three times, Hamlet twice, Shylock twice. Uh, what do you hope you'll continue to achieve for your audiences and for yourself? Well, I feel that the young people that I'm meeting and also the older people that I'm meeting um, can find a way 
to uh, express themselves through Shakespeare without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And if it means a little bit of rewriting or adapting, I'm okay with that. I'm not so much about translating it, although I've done a lot of the play on work. I think the original text is magic. The syntax, the choice of words, the invention of words, the poetry versus the prose, the songs, the, the inv invocation of divinity, bringing God into the room through various names, Jove, Diana, Jupiter, bring God into the room. Um, and that as above, so below, uh, that there's a way of um, adding to the music of the spheres even now, you know, with our planet in crisis, that if humans can really resonate at the heart level and bring their actions and their words together and influence groups of people to feel their hearts and use their words, maybe we can save the planet. So I'm really interested in saving the world. I don't need the applause. I need to save the world and the people in it. But we've already, you know, eradicated 90% of our species. I feel like if all of us speak Shakespeare to our communities and communities gather, that we as people can wake up our desire to love and live and save the planet and save one another and save the arts. And I believe that arts and culture lead to strong democracies and healthier communities. And I think that we shouldn't throw Shakespeare out. I think there's a lot in it that's gorgeous. And, and the salt and the grit that's there. And a lot of that is around gender, isn't it? A lot of it is around gender and a lot of it is around um, old systems of patriarchy which as women rise all over the world into leadership positions, um, I think we want to support that. And um, there have certainly been a lot of uh, very powerful men doing very dangerous things in leadership positions, especially in the last five years, uh, Putin and Trump and I'm, you know, everybody has their own politics. But for me, uh, women and children and families are being destroyed and um, in the name of power and greed. And I think anything that enhances our sense of humanity and um, presence and uh, soul presence and um, knitting together of that which is lost, that which is lost must be found. It is required that we do awake our faith. And this yep. is a kind of non-denominational church, if you will, the Church of Shakespeare, where we can all gather and pray through songs and dances and words and community, and everybody should be in the room. It shouldn't just be white men. Everyone gets to be in that room in every country. And because we have the internet now, we can share it instantaneously. Whereas when I was a kid or 40 years ago, we worked alone in silos. If it wasn't in the newspaper, I didn't know about it. If it wasn't in a book, I didn't know about it. But these podcasts uh, you can listen to when you're going for a walk in the woods and um, Hopefully, we'll share it with people who will get inspired to start their own uh, new ways of including uh, the people in our world and the Shakespeare practices. This has been an inspirational conversation, Lisa. And, you know, you're thinking about the future and, and how to preserve things. Imagine, if you will, the collections, an archive preserves things. A great collection looks after artifacts for those who are yet to be born. If you could deposit, something in Stratford-upon-Avon, you know, I know it's a special heart for you, in the collections of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, what would you deposit and why? I would put the digital uh, copies of all the 
40 years of work that I have of multicultural female and trans Shakespeare. I did in London with the Young Vic and King's College, all scenes from Shakespeare with all genders and trans people. I have multicultural all-female Shakespeare beginning in 1993, even to this year, and it will go forth. I have also photographs, um, letters, reviews, analyses, um, Dr. Katie Brokaw at University of Merced did 60 interviews. She had her students do 60 interviews with colleagues of mine, which she has transcribed. Uh, firsthand witnesses of people whose lives were changed by doing this work, their memories of what it did for them. And um, if there was a place for the legacy of my efforts and the efforts of the more than thousand women and girls and the trans people and the men who have done this transformational work with us, I would be grateful if scholars and um, you know, future generations could access it at Stratford-upon-Avon because I'll tell you, Paul, it was the first excellent Shakespeare that I ever saw as a teenager. I went to London when I was 17. I saw theater every day. I traveled up to Stratford-upon-Avon and saw a play there. It was Henry V, I think. I'd have to look. I think it was Henry V. And since then, to be friends with you and Stanley Wells and the glorious people of the Shakespeare community, the international Shakespeare community, as you know, the international Shakespeare community are my friends and also the people that I most want to influence because they hold the keys to the next generation of practitioners. So I would put in everything that I have. I would give you everything I have and let it be um, placed in a, in a, in a vault that's accessible. It's a good job this is audio only because I'm in tears right now listening to you. I, I want to bless you and thank you for your beautiful and good intention of that that gift. And thank you for this inspirational conversation. I, our thank audiences you. can find out more about you if they go to lisavolpe.com. And, yeah. and there they can find trailers and clips of some of your work and a bit more about how you've been working and, and your current projects. And thank you very, very much indeed for joining us on, on Shakespeare Live. We wish you well. And we, we look forward to hearing about how you continue to break new ground you've got the prague shakespeare company this summer and and all that will lead on to so much ahead and thank you paul for being a huge influencer in my life and being a, a center for so many people who want to be educated and uplifted i'm grateful and i have profound gratitude for this podcast opportunity Thank you for listening to this episode of shakespeare alive with paul join me next week when i talk to evie gurney costume designer who recently worked on the National Theatre's production of Much Ado About Nothing. If you'd like to find out more about the Houses, Collections, Research and Education activity at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, then please head over to our website shakespeare.org.uk. 